Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 45 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 45, we are going to be talking about a slew of interesting topics. We actually have a couple of really cool questions coming in from listeners, and we love, uh, or comments, questions and comments coming in from listeners, and we love that. We're going to talk a little bit about some P&W activities. We've got the district meet number one coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to cover Hebrews chapters three and four. We're going to go into some of our listener questions and comments. And then toward the end, we're going to be going into what I'm calling umbrage dialogues, where uh, one of the two of us will have a particular topic of umbrage, things that cause us uh, dismay, sadness, uh, not good feelings uh, when it relates to quizzing, um, which sounds kind of counterintuitive because quizzing is so awesome and we both think that quizzing is totally awesome so why would we have umbrage related to things about quizzing well we'll we'll get into some of what that is uh so to kick things off let's start by talking about quiz meet number one which is uh coming up in just a couple of days so we're we uh we are recording this on tuesday the 8th and we are going to be uh, meeting together in like what three days on Friday the 11th at uh, EBC in Kent. So uh, for folks in PNW, check-in time is at 6 p.m. Announcements will be at 6:30. Check-in is really pretty, you know, casual. I mean, just kind of show up and wave at somebody and say, "Yes, I'm here." Um, that's the equivalent of checking in. There isn't like a registration desk or anything formal. Um, so anyway, what a couple of announcements specific to EBC that we're going to be doing differently. Uh, as mentioned before, we are going to be doing adult quizzing. So we've got, uh, the adult quizzing league starting. We've got, I think nine people so far registered for that. So it's going to be a fairly small, uh, league to start with, but that's fine. There's uh, certainly space uh, for it to grow and capacity for it to grow without interfering with the youth program, which is always going to be our primary focus. So if you are uh, aged out of the program at whatever age that happens to be and you might want to participate in Adult Quizzing League, uh, please talk to either me or Jeremy when you check in at EBC on Friday, or better yet, just email us ahead of time so we can uh, plan for that. Uh, after the meet concludes on Saturday, uh, we're going to hopefully get done by around four o'clock. Uh, after that is over, we're going to have a post meet dinner. Uh, and, uh, this is of course optional for anybody in the, uh, PNW who's at the meet, who wants to continue to fellowship and hang out together. We're going to meet it, be meeting at a nearby mod pizza in Kent. Uh, apparently that's a yummy place with relatively inexpensive, yummy food. And, uh, we'll just go and hang out there. If you can make it by all means do, it's not required. There's no shaming if you can't make it or anything like that, but if you can, it'll be a great chance to just sort of continue the fellowship and the fun. Uh, from the quiz meet just for a little bit longer before folks hit the road for their journeys back. And in some cases, very long journeys back. All right. With that said, uh, Scott, any kind of district meet one thingies topics you can think of? Boy, I really can't. Um, We're so close. I can't really influence a whole lot of study at this point. Plus meet one is largely, it can be largely inconsequential. Um, but if you are a quizzer shooting for Great West or Internationals, it feels really nice to have a great score underneath your belt after meet one. It is by no means um, a necessity, but um, it definitely eases your mental state going forward if you put up a really nice score at meet one. Indeed. And I would say meet one is a, is a, is the place where you sort of set the tone for how you're going to perform throughout the entire season. Obviously you can make corrective changes along the way, but if you set yourself up to do well at district meet one, it sort of sets the kind of the, the building block, the foundation for uh, how things roll out uh, throughout the rest of the year. Now, certainly in terms of district meets uh, statistic statistics wise, it's the least important or the least weighted of, of the meets going forward. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it, it sort of sets the groundwork for things that, uh, that can come. Definitely. Well, let's, uh, hop on to Hebrews chapter three and four. Uh, Scott, what were your, uh, thoughts, uh, from these, uh, two chapters? So looking at chapter three, there are, uh, not many key verses within PNW. So I, I count four of the 19 verses are key, um, and not necessarily going hand in hand with that, but, 
there's not a whole lot of unique material in this chapter apart from verse 13, which is both a key verse and has five unique words in it. The rest of the chapter is probably going to be um, a lot of reference questions. There is uh, a good number of multiple answers from this chapter, both reference and non-reference multiple answers. But this is probably going to be a, a pretty tough chapter, relatively speaking, to get questions from because there, there will be a lot of reference questions and any interrogatives will be largely built off of unique phrases and not unique words. Um, but Hebrews, Hebrews in, in general, I find to be very memorable. So even though there isn't a ton of unique material, um, I think this can be a relatively easy chapter to memorize. There is a lot of repetitive material. So there's a lot of um, the word faithful. Um, there's a lot of builder. Um, there's a lot of rest and rested um, and the word tested. Um, so, um, yeah, just actually, I am, I think I'm verging into chapter. There's a lot of rest in chapter four too. Um, but there's a lot of kind of similar material that's going to really require the quizzer to know exactly which verse they're in, um, so that they don't subtly switch from verse to verse without kind of knowing it, which can happen when material is similar to other material. Right. Indeed. I had similar thoughts uh, from three and four as I did from chapters one and two. Obviously, the same style. It's from the same book. It's just the consecutive next couple of chapters. So it's not terribly surprising that it's going to feel very similar in a lot of respects. Uh, I sort of echo what Scott was talking about in chapter three in terms of key material. Uh, There's definitely some phrases that repeat you definitely want to be watching out for. In chapter four, a recommendation I would have for, say, rookie quizzers or uh, quizzers who are, uh, you know, starting out in the program uh, and kind of building from, uh, looking to build from a base, look at look at the key words, or I keep saying key words, they're not key anymore, they're called unique, but I don't know, I always call them key. Look at the unique words from, from chapter four. There tends to be be with some exceptions there tends to be a, a key word or two you there there i go again unique word there tends to be a unique word in almost but not all of every verse and they tend to set themselves up for fairly easy interrogative questions entering what right uh, uh seventh what right from uh, from verse four uh, rested from what, you know, that kind of stuff. Very easy questions that can be written from that sort of material. And they're going to be fairly quick to jump on. But if you can, you know, get yourself memorized through chapter four, it's only 16 verses, and then start looking at some of those unique words, then I, th- and, and kind of practice those unique words. I think that'll do you some good. Yes. And in chapter four, um, looking at four verse seven, Certain day where certain is a unique word, a global unique word, and then in verse 8, another day where another is a chapter keyword. That just, as a question writer, you just your eyes zoom to it. You want to write what day as a chapter verse reference question from each one and make sure and test that the quizzer knows exactly what verse that they're in. Um, so that's something to look for. Verse 12 is one of the more memorable verses in all of Hebrews. Um, it's got a ton of potential multiple answers in it, but it also is a little bit long. So it helps to really spend some extra time so that if you get to finish the verse or a quote on that verse, you can quote it all word perfect. And verse 15, I recall it because it has a few different kind of phrases or chunked phrases at the end. Um, some quizzers will just forget a whole phrase entirely and have everything else word perfect, which to me is one of the most excruciating ways to miss a finish the verse or a quote. So just make sure you have those final bits down, the just as we are and um, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jumping back to Hebrews 3, 2, sometimes you may hear officials and your coaches talk about 50-50 reference questions. Um, and most of the best examples are just two words, like good man or something like that. But 3 verse 2 has two really, really awesome um, single answer reference questions that are also um, of the 50-50 nature. So Moses was what and who was faithful. Um, I'm not commenting on them to scare you because the odds that you jump on that and it's that and you guess wrong is very astronomically low. But to me, that's one of the best examples of a 50-50 reference question. Um, 
and I think I had something else from chapter four. Yeah, chapter four is where there's tons of the word rest. So enter that rest, enter my rest, rested, enter my rest, enter that rest. Uh, and it can be very hard or very easy to be quoting one verse. And once you hit that kind of similar phrase, enter my rest, enter that rest, you subtly switch to a different verse without even thinking about it. So make sure you have those phrases solid in your head. Yeah, indeed. Well, in looking back to verse 15 uh, that you were referencing, be really careful about, con- not concatenations, uh, contractions. Uh, so towards the end of verse 15, yet he did not sin. It's really easy when you're when you're standing up quoting uh, verse 15 to say, yet he didn't sin. Because, you know, in our modern English brains, everything becomes a contraction. You know, it's simpler, right? Uh, verse 2, uh, because they did not, uh, because they didn't share. Now, granted, in verse 2, the difference between did not and didn't is not relevant uh, because it's not a, a you're not going to be quoting that verse. But in verse, uh, in verse, uh, where was I? Verse 15, uh, it is critically important that it is, you know, he did not sin. Make sure that you don't fall into that trap. That happened at least... I think once, maybe twice at internationals this past year, uh, somebody uh, ended up uh, contracting uh, something like that, did not or should not or something like that, and uh, they weren't able to get the question in the allotted time. So be careful with that. The other thing to keep in mind about uh, chapter four is um, it's a great chapter to memorize if you're planning on quoting, uh, which it's a great goal to have. Because, I mean, look at uh, verses 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. All in a row, each one of them is a, uh, a quote in and of itself, a quote, finish the verse uh, question. So, you know, if you're going to memorize anything, that would be a great place to go. You know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. You'll be, be able to get a lot of, you know, quotes and finish the verses from those uh, a handful of verses there, those five verses. You'll also be able to get a lot of other sorts of things, uh, reference uh, sorts of things, and a lot of interrogatives from them. Definitely verses, I mean, all of those verses have a lot of key material, but are also littered with reference questions. So if you memorize them all, um, you're set up to get basically every question type from um, the end of chapter four. Indeed. And of course, just like in chapters one and two, chapters three and four are, you know, short. I mean, I I suppose we have to have a a different definition of what short and long means in the Hebrews year, because all of the chapters are fairly short relative to coming off of uh, say last year's material, uh, but because they are short, uh, it, there's a greater opportunity to memorize the entire chapter, which is a wonderful thing because it opens that once you have the entire chapter memorized, it opens you up to chapter reference questions. Uh, and that's a really great opportunity to be able to increase your average, get a few more questions, every quiz, that kind of thing. So I encourage everybody who's out there listening to memorize as much as you can the full chapter, ideally, uh, I would rather see somebody miss a chapter and have other chapters fully memorized than to get, say, 80 or 90% of every chapter. Now, ideally, I'd love everybody to memorize everything, but if I had to choose between 80% of all the chapters or 80% of the chapters, but those chapters were fully memorized, I would definitely lean toward the latter rather than the former, because I think it'll open you up to more opportunities, uh, especially with chapter reference questions, but other questions as well. Well, with that said, uh, how about we move into our listener questions? Uh, So the first one is from uh, Aiden. And Scott, do you want to read us out those questions, the the questions there? And uh, we'll just kind of go from there. Yes. So um, question from Aiden is regarding Jesus's in Hebrews 5, 7, and Moses's in Hebrews eleven twenty three. how would a qu- quiz master properly pronounce those two words? Um, and let's just start there. And I think you have to pronounce both of those with three syllables if you are a quiz master. I realize that um, the convention in English is apostrophe S signifies a possessive, but if the ending letter of whatever is the possessive is already an S, you just put um, a trailing apostrophe and not an additional S. But this is no different than like John's or um, Mary's or anything else. It's just a lot harder kind of phonetically to say. Um, but the possessive is totally a different word um, than just Jesus. And I believe the quizmaster is absolutely required to pronounce these very clearly, which 
can be tough to do to pronounce them both very clearly, but not unduly drag them out. Um, it can be simple to just go like Jesus's disciples were there or something like that. Um, but you don't want to do that. You need to read in a conversational manner. So, um, yeah. Anything to add, Griffin? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you said. I think for me, I, I think I mentioned to Aiden in, uh, in response to his email that I would probably personally pronounce it Jesus's as in almost like an I Z at the end of Jesus, uh, Jesus's, you know, whatever it happens to be Moses's something or other. But I think that's just a phonetic thing that I do. Um, maybe it's a, not a dialect, but a pronunciation in the Pacific Northwest or something like that. That is certainly by no means required. But I think what you said is is nailing it. There, there, there needs to be three syllables, uh, and exactly what that third syllable is. Eh, okay, fine, uh, but definitely a conversational pace, the way that you would normally speak. And so I, I think for me, I would say Jesus is the other thing that kind of piqued my interest about this question. And it's, it's a phenomenal question. The thing that I found very interesting is uh in the rule book there is a there's frequent use of the word word uh it uses the word word in many places to define rules but i don't think it ever defines what the word word means no and i i mean to me this is pretty clearly a i mean i'm jumping ahead in the aiden's questions but this is clearly a word and the word jesus is also a word and it is different but i think you might have some disagreements on say hyphenated words I don't know if warm-blooded or cold-blooded exists in biblical text, um, but some people might say that's actually two words, and some people might say that that's just one word, and I don't really know um, which it is. Well, so here's the thing. I think from a quizzing perspective, a quizzing mindset perspective, I completely agree that Jesus and Jesus's are two different words. However, I think Englishily, and if that's a word, and if not, I just made it up, um, patent pending. I, I, I want to say it's really just one word. It's sort of, um, sort of like looking at, uh, words out of the, uh, the dictionary. I would see Jesus and Jesus is, it's sort of like an implied every word can be possessive, uh, in a sense. Uh, and so it's not a separate word in terms of say, like what Webster's would define. So in a sense, I almost feel like, not that I want to have rule book bloat or anything, but I almost feel like we need to define what I think think would be a fairly universal belief that Jesus and Jesus's are two different words. Uh, and therefore, like Jesus's, if it was unique, which I believe it is, should therefore for be referenced as a unique word and therefore have uh, the requirements to be sp uh, spoken as a, a unique word. Of course, that would be very difficult to get that not correct. I guess if you said Jesus and not Jesus's, then you would not fall under the either the deity rule or the pronoun clarification rule. But um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? Can you restate that? I'm sorry. I probably babbled all over, all over the place. Um, I think the rule book, because it does not define what the word word means, it should because our definition of what word, the word word means is different than what, say, Webster would define what the word word means. Oh, interesting. Perhaps I don't. I don't. I haven't really run into a problem with it. Um, so I. I don't know. I mean, me either. I would. I would. I guess I would invoke the Lily Rule on this one. Um, it, you know, if somebody is coming, anybody in quizzing just sort of recognizes. Okay, yeah, these are these are two different words. But I mean, somebody coming into quizzing from outside may be confused by it. Sure. Now, one thing I do see is. Um, people kind of tend to slur. Like, I think when you say Jesus is kind of more of a Z sound, I-Z, I think that is still, once you hit that three syllables, it's clear that this is a possessive word and not a different word. I definitely see people pronounce this as two syllables, but pronounce the ending just a little bit different because it's possessive, kind of almost like a slur, Jesus, um, and not really go into a third syllable. And I think... Um, that's decently common to hear in everyday English language. But as a quiz master, you would need to be a lot more precise and make it clear that this is possessive and you go into the third syllable. Aiden's follow-up question is, is it challengeable if those words are mispronounced by the quiz master? I think absolutely yes. So I don't think this falls under the 
I mean, quizzers are still going to still be deemed to be correct if mispronounced names are recognizable as the answer. And for a lot of um, biblical names in quizzing, we do not publish like a pronunciation guide that quiz masters have to adhere to. Um, and so, and I generally have not heard a problem with various different ways that quiz masters could pronounce proper names. But to me, even though this is a proper name, the difference here is that it, it is possessive. And that needs to be clearly distinguished. And I think that's a clear challengeable thing if a quiz master doesn't. There are other mispronunciations by a quiz master that I personally think are challengeable, but are more of a gray area. I think one example would be interrogative words. So there are some times where who or a what starts a question, but it is not at the interrogative word. It is the word from the material. And sometimes quiz masters will not realize this and will read it kind of like it's the interrogative word. Sometimes you put a little more emphasis on it if it is the interrogative word, um, especially when it's leading off a question. I think that that's challengeable, but that's a really tough thing to say like, oh, you clearly read it as the interrogative word when really it's a word from the material. That's that's a much more murky challenge, but I I would always want to hold quiz masters to a really high standard because I don't think it's hard to you know, read a possessive as a possessive or read a non-interactive word as a non-interactive word or read conversationally. Yeah, I agree. I would, I would say it's challengeable if there isn't a third syllable. If the third syllable is slightly different, like an ES versus an IZ versus a, I don't know what other derivations there are. I don't know that that would really stand up as challengeable, but if it's, if it's not pronounced if it if there are two syllables instead of three or if the third syllable is slurred to such a great degree with the second word or sorry the second syllable uh then yeah i'd I'd say that that's challengeable i agree i'm trying to think there's a situation that i always made sure to read as a quiz master like in a very conversational manner because it gave the quizzers information oh commas that's so there are times where quiz masters will kind of blitz through a comma, I think, because they don't want a whole beat or a whole syllable of no material. But I think it is absolutely critical that you read the material conversationally as it is written, and a comma is read differently than if there's not a comma. I completely agree. Uh, so, like, looking back at Hebrews chapter 3 today, right? Uh, so verse uh, 7 and verse 15 uh, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, right? Uh, in, in particular, in verse 15, today, comma, if you hear his voice, comma, do not harden your hearts, right? Though there needs to be a pause. It doesn't have to be a significant amount of time. But I mean, you would never, you would never recite that question, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do, right? Like, like, that's just, you would never talk that way, right? Uh, so as a quiz master, I think it actually does a disservice by skipping the comma. I think the comma needs to be there. I think what you're doing is you're reading conversationally, not too fast, not too slow, clearly enunciating every word, throwing the pauses in there. And w when somebody jumps, they jump. Like, I, I think it's certainly not tempting. What's the word? It's easy, I guess. I mean, let's go with an easy word. It's easy for a quiz master to fall into the trap of altering how they speak based on your perception of who's going to jump when. And I think that's a really bad practice to get into. Um, I've, I've caught myself doing that from t uh, time to time because of, I don't want to bleed extra material out. And so I will... Um, uh, I, I'll be like, okay, obviously somebody's going to jump by such and such syllable, and I will I'll do like kind of a hiccup as I get to that syllable, and that's a terrible, terrible, terrible habit that I'm trying really hard to get rid of, uh, because I just I just need to recite the question conversationally and stop as quickly as possible, reducing the bleed, but without sacrificing the conversational even sort uh, not tone, the even rhythm of the words that I'm reciting. Rhythm is a great word for it. I remember coming off of internationals practices um, when I would start restart the district year and the next year, um, I would often read references really, really poorly because I was so used to being stopped in the exact middle of a reference, you know, like on 14, right on that fort. And so I would read it very unrhythmically, you know, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. I would kind of have that hiccup, as you say, and I had to retrain myself to not expect where that middle is going to come or not be used to where that middle was always coming. And I remember one year, it was the first meet of the year in a short material, so it actually might have been Hebrews, 
and it was finals. And finals had the three best Kievers quizzers in our district. So it's the best teams and the best Kievers quizzers. And it was, you know, the second or third or fourth finals quiz. And a finish of this came up on, like, question 19. And I saw it coming, and I knew that the jump was going to be right on the edge of being fouled or not, like whether I gave a mouth shape or not. But before I read the question type, I took a brief pause and told myself, like, I have to read this like I'm expecting to read the whole five words of this question and just stop when I see the light. And then, indeed, someone jumped at a spot where I think I awarded the jump to them because I had made a mouth shape and someone challenged because, anyway, that was whole, but like. I had to really make sure that I read that conversationally, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen. Like, I knew it was going to happen, and I knew where they were going to jump. But an example on the commas from, like, Hebrews 1.9, um, actually, let's start at Hebrews 2.8. A question can start with, God left nothing that is not what? Um, and that's just read purely, you know, God left nothing that is not what? But in Hebrews 1.9, it's God, comma, your God, comma. And so I would make sure to say, God, your God, because sometimes if that quizzer jumps and maybe they have the mouth shape of the Y from your, but if they know that like rhythmically and timing, I should have gotten more material, they, they'll know that that's a comma. And then God, comma, and then a mouth shape of a Y, that is tons and tons of information than as a quiz master trying to blitz through and um, really give incorrect information to the quizzer by omitting the comma in your read. Yeah, totally agree. And Aiden actually has a third fault or a, Second follow-up question, is Jesus's a unique word or non-unique? What defines a word in terms of the rule book? Could it be argued that Jesus's is not unique and therefore doesn't need to be stated explicitly? Uh, pretending for a moment that uh, pronunciation clarification wouldn't apply, which it would, of course. I don't think you could argue that it's not unique. I think it's definitely its own word because there's there's tons of different variations of a, of a word. I'm the contraction didn't is different from did not. Um, and I don't, that feels like a weak argument in this case, but um, yeah. I'd, what would you say, Griffin? Well, this is where this is the, my Webster's thing. I, I think a contraction is definitely different than a non-contraction. Uh, there's some ambiguity around hyphenated words, which again, like if it's an E in dash, technically it is one word. It's just, it's made up of two words that are uh, essentially concatenated together basically they're contracted together without actually being uh contracted um the or i suppose they're contracted without an apostrophe they're contra uh, contracted with a an e in dash so they are one word uh but i think in terms of uh you know the sort of the oxford english dictionary sort of rules of english i think a possessive word is the same thing as as it's unpossessive root. Uh, it's not sort of a, a uh, what's the word, like a T-I-O-N or ing or gerund, you know, these kind of things. It, it's, uh, it is the same word. It just happens to have a, a possessive uh, connotation on top of it. Now, I could be wrong. I could be very, very wrong about that. But I want to say in terms of English, it's a different word. But in terms of quizzing, it's, I, I don't know, it's, I got to, I, no, actually, I don't not know. I, I feel very firmly in terms of quizzing that they are a separate word. So in terms of quizzing, like, I would absolutely say, no, it is a unique word. It, it must be a unique word. Jesus is, I mean, it, it, it is definitely its own word. But uh, I, I don't know how to prove that definitively without sort of a rule book uh, explanation. Sure. And I can see how if... Um like a dictionary or Webster's would say that these are all different forms of the same word, then they are saying it's the same word. Um, but it's the different forms that really drives the difference quizzing wise. And we don't get into the definition of it quizzing wise because we really don't need to, but I can see how you could make that argument. And it does remind me of, um, I was, tr this was years ago, maybe eight years ago. I was trying to figure out what defines a sentence for the purposes of um, what is a valid finish this and what is not. And um, there really is no definition of sentence that involves punctuation. Like it's not necessarily, oh yeah, sentence start comes after a period. Or um, it's much more ambiguous and based on the language of it and its usage in language. Like, oh yeah, this is a sentence versus something else. Um, and so I kind of 
was unsatisfied with the lack of objectivity there. Now, in quizzing, um, most often finish this is occur at the start of a quotation or at the start of a sentence, which almost always is after a period. But I have seen some finish this is that begin after a colon, not a semicolon, a colon. And I think that is pretty easily defensible as the beginning of a sentence. Um, and I've never really run across people that have a problem with the lack of definition over the beginning of a sentence when it comes to finish this questions. But that's another example where you might find differences of opinion and something that is not 100% objective in the quizzing land. Yeah, indeed. All right, well, let's move on to listener questions number two. So Alex writes in and says, I finally caught up on the last few episodes of Inside Quizzing. I wondered if you could talk a bit about multiple answers in Hebrews. I've only looked through the first five chapters, but there seem to be very few phrases with multiples compared to previous books. Also, some of the keys are unexpectedly unique. For example, the sun is what and he makes what. And I did a very unscientific thing and went through the first six chapters of John and Hebrews and looked in the PW set and saw how many multiple answers are there. And actually, in Hebrews, there are 0.87 multiple answers per verse in the first six chapters. And in John, there was 0.74 multiple answers per verse. Um, now, there's way more verses in John, so there were way more multiple answer questions, like counting-wise, right? But relative to the amount of material, there's actually more in Hebrews. And as time goes on... and well, we're already in that time, but I would expect there to be fewer and fewer multiple answers because of the fact that positive and negative multiple answers are deemed illegal now. And there's a decent amount of those, both very clearly a positive and a negative and some more ambiguously a positive and a negative. Um, we often think of a negative word like not, but I think you can easily argue that words like unless are just as negative and could deem a lot of questions um, invalid. And so I think... Um, you may be seeing a perception that there's just so many fewer multiple answer questions because the material is so short, but there also might be fewer relative to some past years um, because of um, that invalidity rule being added to the rule book. I totally love, I totally love this. I love this podcast, right? Like where else are, are, are you going to send a question like this and have Scott tell you like 0.8327 four, right? Like I love the inside quizzingness of inside quizzing. And this is, this is perfect. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't have anything really to add to this other than to just nerd out over the stats <laughs> that you just quoted. Um, I will actually know there is one thing that does remind me. So uh, Alex's first uh, sentence in, in her comment here, I finally got caught up on the last few episodes of inside quizzing. So yay. Um, you know, listening to lots of episodes of the podcast is cool because you know, the podcast is cool, but, uh, I, I hear this actually from a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm like so many episodes behind. I really got to, you know, spend a weekend to catch up or something like that. Don't feel obligated. Like you're, you're not paying for these, right? Like you can just skip to the end. It's okay. This is not like a, you know, a mystery novel where you're cheating yourself. If you just skip to the last chapter or something like that. Right. Um, so, I mean, sure, go ahead and listen to the back episodes if you want to, but you're in no way obligated to do so. I have definitely run across podcasts that have enormous back catalogs, like hundreds and thousands of episodes. And um, it is definitely a point of pride among listeners that they either were listening from the beginning or have listened to the entire um, like spate of episodes. And it seems to me like, to a person, every single host is like, I sure don't care about that. And I think it's crazy that someone would stumble across us at show 400 and go back and listen to them all. But you can do whatever you want. <laughs> but most of them are just as miffed as you are that anyone would go back and <laughs> listen to any or um, have some need to be a completionist with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I mean, if you want to do it, by all means, I mean, the shows are free, um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would just listen to maybe the last one or two, and that's really, I don't think, I don't think we're that cool. <laughs> so Alex's next question is, the question I'd really like to get your opinion on, though, is Hebrews 1.5. The multiple answer, for to which of the angels did God ever say what, came up at practice. And I believe you mentioned something similar as a chapter verse. Um, and... 
I'm sure Alex knows exactly why I said it was a chapter first, because I started the question at the two, to which of the angels did God ever say what? But if you started at the four, four two is a un- two-word unique phrase, and so four to which of the angels did God ever say is a plain multiple answer without any need for a reference. Um, but continuing her question, but my quizzers were confused by the rhetorical nature of the statement. God said those things, but not to any angels. Could an answer that's part of a rhetorical statement be considered misleading? Does it matter what the rhetorical answer is? For example, in Hebrews 1.14, which is, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Question mark. So in Hebrews 1.14, um, is hard to misconstrue. It's hard to misconstrue that verse because all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. But in verse 5, God didn't say those things to any angels. And I think this is an interesting question, um, but I think it falls mostly under um, the burden on question writers to write clear questions. I think there are these, there are many either statements or questions in uh, the Bible that did not actually happen or are rhetorical in nature. But as as long as as a question writer you're including kind of the full breadth of that rhetoricalness. Um, it shouldn't be misleading, right? If you start this, like, to which of the angels did God ever say what, I think that's that's clear. You're capturing the whole essence of this thought. Now, if you said something – now, admittedly, this is a really poorly written question, but if you said, like, God ever say what, well, then you're, like, cutting off the whole rhetorical part, and you're just giving this isolated picture. And to me, that, while valid, would be a really – poorly written question and quite a lot more misleading than including that whole rhetorical statement. Um, so the question I asked someone else who said the question isn't implying that God did say those statements. Um, it's asking which two statements the author of Hebrews is rhetorically saying God never said. Um, other thoughts. Oh, another poorly written question would be what did God ever say? Right, because that you're very clearly asking, like, what did God say when He actually didn't? Um, but if you include again that whole run-up and the context of this statement, I think it's very clear. Anything to add before I march on, Griffin? Well, one sort of like higher-level thought. So I agree with everything you said. Uh, sort of my higher-level thought is in quizzing, we're not quizzing on the meaning; we're quizzing on the words. Uh, and of course. I'll go back to my what's a word, you know, question, but we're quizzing on the material, right? Uh, the, the reference material. Certainly there is massive, significant spiritual meaning in the reference material, but we are quizzing with questions and answers based on that. So this is not a, you know, quizzing is not trivia. It's not based on your understanding of the material. It's based on your ability to memorize and recite what you've memorized from the material. So in that regard, yeah, I, you know, certainly we shouldn't be writing questions that are tricky or misleading because, you know, they, those can be challengeable, but does this rise to that level? I'm not, I'm not thinking it really does. Yeah. An example I came up in my head is if the text is, what if he died? Um, you probably don't want to write questions like he, what, or who died. Um, but you can totally write the question, what if he, what, or something like that, that again, kind of captures the whole thought. Some other examples, um, Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to make, his, to make known his wrath and to show his power, and then the verse goes on, um, the best question would start at the what if God part, or just go to a small phrase like make known what, or show what, desiring to what. Um, but yeah, so that would be a good way to write those questions. In John 6, it says, What if you see the Son of Man ascend us to where he was before? Um, Writing something like, you see the Son of Man what, wouldn't be a great question. And there's not really a reason to write it like that when you can just say, what if you see the Son of Man what, or something like, or what if you see the Son of Man ascend where? Because again, that captures um, full meaning and would not be misleading. I think that is it on this question. So I think it's really just a burden on the question writer to write stuff clear and... Um, so here's a question. This is definitely a um, – I am very biased, Griffin, so I'm going to try to pose this in as unbiased a way as I can. But there are easy vocabulary words, hard vocabulary words, easy um, thematic concepts and difficult thematic concepts, um, and either very, very straightforwardly written questions and maybe more or less straightforwardly written questions. And we also have a range of ages, abilities, um, 
among the eligible quizzing community, right? Sixth through twelfth grade. So when we're developing rules, should we attempt to write something that is I mean, again, this is gonna be a subjective statement, but like easily understandable by a hundred percent of the people, or easily understandable by at least fifty percent? Or like how do you like what should be our standard when we're deciding what's reasonable? Like something might be very clear to a twelfth grader, but could be tricky or misleading to a sixth grader. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. So, uh, generally speaking, uh, okay. So uh, let's argue from first principles. So the first principle is do whatever is going to get the uh, or result in the most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. So I don't like the idea of having tricky or misleading questions because it's demotivating. But what does that mean, right? Is it tricky or misleading for a 12th grader versus a 6th grader, right? So if you aim toward having something that is not tricky or misleading, assuming, because, I mean, not all 6th graders and 12th graders are created equal, right? So, I mean, I'm just going to make this horrible ageist assumption that a 12th grader is cognitively more capable than somebody who's in sixth grade, which is a terrible, terrible assumption to make. And it's not true. Uh, but let's just pretend that it's true for the sake of just theoretical argument here. Right. Um, do you then write your questions and write your rule book to target such that a sixth grader is fully capable of understanding and, you know, uh, competing at 100% uh, in, in across everything. And by doing so, does that demotivate the 12th grader? Right. Um, if there is even a scale, uh, that happens, right. Maybe there isn't a scale. Uh, maybe the, the sixth grader and the 12th grader cognitively are equivalent. And they're, this is just sort of an exercise in, you know, uh, yak shaving or something, but assuming that there is a scale, right. I think it is, not a good idea. It, it goes against our first principles to target the sixth grader, quote unquote, instead of targeting something in the middle. Um, because I think what you'll end up seeing is you'll see if, if you target the sixth grader, assuming all of our assumptions are true, if you target the sixth grader, you'll demotivate the 12th grader. If you target the 12th grader, you will demotivate, demotivate the sixth grader. So I think you sort of pick something in the middle of those, ex, uh, those areas and this sort of also leads into that the theory that we've talked about on previous podcasts, which I don't necessarily recommend everyone go and listen to right now. But in previous podcasts where we have said, you know, have a variety of question uh, types of difficulty, right? So, you know, have so, uh, questions that are really straightforward and easy for the for the quote unquote sixth grader, have questions that are much more complex and, and not tricky or misleading, but harder, right, for the 12th grader. And I think then you have an opportunity to motivate the most number of people to memorize the most number of questions or sorry, the most amount of material. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like I just try to write good questions that are clear um, and reasonable to as many people as possible. And I think you could pick out many areas of quizzing that um, if you're older, you just have an advantage for one reason or another. But I don't don't think it necessarily makes that bad um and i also don't think it would apply to everyone regard you know of whether they are older or younger on the spectrum and so it just seems weird to say like oh reference questions are this is hypothetical of course like reference questions are really hard for sixth graders let's just get rid of them you know um you'd want to like dig into more like is this question type demotivating for the whole of the quizzing community um and look at it more holistically and not be kind of myopic and simplistic about, oh, I knew a sixth grader once who ran across reference questions and was so confused they stopped quizzing, which totally might have happened. But that in and of itself is no reason um, to make a large sweeping decision that affects everybody. Yeah, totally. Laws and rules should not be defined based on edge cases. Uh, they should be based on what's going to cause the most number of people to memorize the most amount of material. So yeah, I totally agree. I think we've sufficiently hit this one for now. All right. Well, moving on into our next set of topics. Um, so here is where we're going to go into what I'm calling umbrage dialogues. So things upon which either Scott or I or uh, topics where we take umbrage, which I've always found to be a fascinating 
uh, phrase to take umbrage to basically to take the feelings of being upset over. Um, anyway, I'm sure there's a, a, a beautiful history to that phrase and I have no idea where it came from, but things from which either Scott or I take umbrage, but we're going to address them in a sort of dialogic sort of way. And I mean that by see, I, I, a sense, in a sense, a modified Socratic dialogue, which is not to be confused with the Socratic method. We're not going to be doing sort of the question and answer thing style of the Socratic method, but instead the Socratic dialogue where we start from a general question, uh, try to nail down some principles and kind of narrow the focus and then expand to ramifications as a result of that. So here's where some of these are. And uh, I, I start each one with a question and then kind of lead into uh, kind of defining that a little bit better and then some examples. And then we'll see some points on either side of the fence for some of these. And, and we'll see where you guys uh, uh, lead uh, lean on any particular of these questions. By the way, please email us if you have any disagreements about anything that we've said in this podcast, especially if it's about anything on the umbrage side of the fence. And if you have particular you know, umbrages that you'd like to take, um, please email us those, those umbrages because it might be some very interesting topics. So the first one is around the idea of financial profit in Bible quizzing. So the question is thus, is it okay? Is it, and define okay to mean whatever you want, right? Morally good, <laughs> you know, reasonably good, practically good, whatever that, th there's a lot of different ways that you can define okay, right? But is it okay to use Bible quizzing as a means to make financial profit? And I want to be clear about the word profit. I'm not talking about revenue. Uh, we're not talking about covering expenses because, you know, certainly, you know, going to quiz meets is going to cost some money. We're going to sometimes have to rent uh, facilities. Uh, some folks have to drive. There's gas involved, uh, airplane tickets if it's certainly really far away. You know, charging people, uh, participants, quizzers, coaches, whatever, uh, to be able to participate to cover expenses. That's that's a totally separate issue. What I'm talking about is where you're going to be making a profit. Um, so some examples of this. Uh, so one would be selling print reference materials, right? So, and this is kind of, this is sort of a personal thing to me, um, because I was, I, many years ago, I had, I took significant umbrage on this topic from one side of the one pers one perspective. And I have slowly become more confused in my thinking over the last several decades, uh, to where now I'm not really sure if I agree with my former self, but, but here's the example. It used to be, uh, and this was back in 1995. Uh, so, you know, this was very shortly after the dinosaurs, uh, got killed off. Uh, we would create and pass around reference materials. Uh, and there was one particular, uh, meet or, or a meeting before the uh, quiz season started or something. And, uh, somebody was selling reference materials and they were just photocopies of reference materials. And what I mean by re a reference material basically just had whatever books or book or books that we were, we were memorizing and uh, quizzing on that particular year were printed out with the keywords, uh, highlighted. And then there was a concordance where you could look up a particular word and see, uh, what uh, verses it existed in. That was really it. And it came as a sort of block of, you know, printed paper. Uh, and I forget exactly how large, but it was a fairly good chunk of paper, call it like a ream of paper or something like that. And they were selling these for tw uh, $20 a piece. And it kind of bugged me. Uh, and it was really this sort of situation that, um, cause I mean, it didn't, it didn't cost $20 to create this thing. And it kind of got under my skin a little bit. Cause I was, I was thinking to myself, like, I, I just felt weird that somebody was making profit off of the need of quizzers and coaches to have, you know, printed reference materials. And that was really the thing that actually started my software development for Bible quizzing. So that was where I started building. I, I initially started writing a a uh, reference materials generator uh, program, and then eventually wrote Quizmaster's Assistant, and then years later wrote CBQZ and, and included all of the reference material stuff therein and so forth. But that was sort of the catalyst that got it started. And sort of my, my feeling at the time was, 
this idea of saying, well, if I can provide this stuff for free, then I should. Uh, and if I can't provide it for free, then I should only charge a, a, an amount of money that covers my expenses, right? Whatever that, whatever that happens to be, right? And so that's just one example. It's selling print reference materials, but there's also other examples like selling access to software, uh, whether that's software that you download and install on your computer or whether that's software that's available online and, you know, selling access to that. Obviously, I don't do that. CBQZ is free. Uh, Quizmaster's Assistant has always been free, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or, you know, take it a little bit step further, the idea of selling jump equipment or scoreboard equipment, that stuff has a fixed cost per, uh, per unit, right? So it's not like software where there's a fixed cost per every, you know, use of the software. It scales, you know, infinitely. Uh, hardware doesn't scale like that. So, you know, there's always going to be costs involved. Uh, so we're not, again, not talking about re recouping expenses for creating quiz equipment, but actually saying, you know, make a profit for it, right? So on one side of the fence, so I mean, the, 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 the negative to this, right, is, um, you know, did, did Jesus ever charge speaking fees, right? Um, you know, to be really, really crass. And the other idea of saying, well, if something can be provided for free or at cost, what's the reason to charge more? The counterpoint of this, you know, and I'm, I'm very much sort of a almost laissez-faire, but certainly a free market uh, sort of capitalist at heart, right? I mean, I'm, I'm semi-retired and able to focus so much time on Bible quizzing because uh, free market capitalism has been very good to me. Uh, there is something to be said for the profit motive, right? So the profit motive existing in, in free markets encourages innovation. You know, certainly we have, you know, references from Luke chapter 10, verses five through seven, first Timothy chapter five, 17 through 18, that, you know, a workman is, it deserves his wages. Don't muzzle the ox, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, and so the idea of overcharging, uh, somebody for something, uh, resulting in a surplus AKA profit can then be a good thing because it fosters innovation or it can be used to turn around and supplement other costs, right? So for example, uh, you know, we charge a little bit extra in terms of user fees, participation fees at the district level than it does to just fully cover the cost because we use that su to subsidize uh, Great West uh, invitational meet costs and international costs to some degree. There's still a fair amount of costs that, that individuals have to uh, you know, have in participating in those, in those events, but we subsidize to some degree there. So I don't know, uh, Scott, what are you, I've been talking for a long time. What do you think? All right. So now you've talked for a while. Now I'm going to talk for a while. <laughs> um, I think it is totally okay to use Bible queen, Bible quizzing as a means to make financial profit. Um, I think, um, many people would hope, um, that those who are using Bible quizzing for either revenue or profit um, don't do so excessively or unnecessarily. Um, but I would not begrudge someone their ability to do that. It might affect how I view them. Um, but I don't know how much grounds I would have to say, like, you're doing something wrong. Um, I might assume that they have misguided motivations or are selfish or something like that. But I don't know that I would feel justified in telling them that or insinuating such to other people. Um, I think, I think oftentimes those within a religion have, um, I think too strong of a belief that everything should either be free or done out of, um, generosity or, and I think that that's nice, but it might be too, um, Utopian is not the word that I want to say, but it might be too optimistic of an outlook and not optimistic because people are fallen, but just optimistic in general, like um, quiz benches and reference material and facilities and software. It doesn't just, um, you know, get magic out of thin air. People put in work to either um, invent it, make it, produce it. Um, and so, I don't know, that takes work and I don't think work should ever be provided for free unless um, it is provided for free of the complete free will of the person producing it. Um, I, I see similar arguments around Bible quizzing that I don't understand. Like people say, um, 
some people are anti-Bible quizzing because we shouldn't be using the Bible as the basis for a competition. Um, some people don't like challenges in quizzing um, because they 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 use some vague argument like we're all Christians, we shouldn't be challenging, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I, I see this kind of similar thread like, oh, you shouldn't be using Bible quizzing to make money. Um, and I don't I don't know where that all specifically comes from, and I don't know how true it really is. Um, I think if someone is willing to produce something and provide it for free or for a very minimal cost, that's wonderful. Now, it could definitely, um, like let's say, like Griffin, you're making reference material, you're making CBQZ, and it's it's free and it's used by a lot of people. Well, because of that, there's been all kinds of question writing and quiz generation software over the years um, in various stages of either polish or upkeep or um, continued development. And it could be because yours is out there and completely free that other people just don't really either have a reason or can't spend time on something because they can't compete with free in a free market sense. And there is it going to be at some point in time where you're not producing reference material. And there might be for a period of time, like an incredible dearth of this resource, right? Because you could argue that you are providing it at an artificially low cost, um, which is to the benefit of everyone now, but could potentially be to the detriment of everyone at some point in the future. Um, so which is a case for always charging some amount of money. Um, like I think one example for me is there was a piece of um, quiz equipment that was integral to quizzing for, for many, um, but it was unbelievably expensive. It was poorly manufactured and the support was awful. Um, and so like I was really upset personally about how poor the product was and that there was only one place that I could get it. But I wasn't going to say like, oh, this is a dishonest person or they're not Christian or something like this because of, you know, but I was trying to figure out anything that I could to kind of spur innovation and competition in the area um, because I think that that would have been the most appropriate way to go about getting better products at lower prices rather than complaining verbally or in a gossip way to other people about this is such a poor product. Because, again, while we would hope that people would provide good products for reasonable prices, even if they are making a profit, um, I, don't, I don't think we should necessarily expect that that would happen in every single case. Um, you want to jump in before I get to two more points? Um, well, you're starting to convince me. You're, 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 what you're doing is you're Adam Smithing me. Um, <laughs> is, I mean, essentially, that's what you're doing. And, and uh, anyway, get to your other two points. So one point is, what about overcharging for some things then use the surplus to reduce other quizzing-related costs? I think this is generally fine. There are many cases of it in quizzing. I know that the hosts of Great West, um, it is good financially to be a host. Um, Again, ignoring the, all the work that goes into hosting. But financially, it is good to be a host. And so it, it might be um, an extra, like a disproportionate amount of income for a quiz program in the years that they do host Great West. Um, but I don't think that that is a good or a bad thing. Um, actually, no, I don't think that, that is a bad thing. Um, there's a lot wrapped up into this, but for Life Impact Ministries, the bulk of their revenue comes from life every three years. And so I can see the difficulties in running a program where, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think it's 70, 80, 90% of your income is for one event that happens once every three years. Um, and so someone might argue like, oh, like you're charging all this money for life, but they don't see all of these other programs that are either minimally charged or, you know, like it's hard for people on the outside to see all the inner workings of a given program. Um, and then, um, but it does, this is almost a counterpoint. It reminds me of Amazon. So Amazon, like the bulk of their revenue and especially profit comes from one specific product and that's Amazon web services. And because of that, they're able to sell retail goods like books and clothes and home goods at very, very, very low prices. And you could make the argument that they're driving all of these other retailers out of business, um, which in the long run is going to be the, to the detriment of consumers. And the only reason Amazon can do this is because of one incredibly profitable product, which is allowing them to artificially price something low, driving out competitors. Now, that's obviously a very sophisticated business model that took 
20 however many years to develop and yada 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 so like but in quizzing i guess there could be one piece of revenue for a program or um, quizzing in general or a church that allows them to charge something lower on i don't know but i think in general quiz programs have to um, make ends meet however they can and are really just in a survival um, cover costs mode all the time and that leads me to my final point which is how important transparency is so like within pnw um, we in essence charge one fee a year and it covers everything now if you're an individual quizzer or a parents of a family or a program leader you might wonder like okay we're paying just this one fee and then everything happens how do I know that this fee is the fee that should be charged, right? And that's why we show the full balance, not the full balance sheet, the full cash flow of what all the costs are in a year and what are all of the revenue items and how we try to make it all wash out to as close as we can to zero at the end of the year. And I think that that is so important because it provides everyone in the program confidence that confidence in um, kind of the reasoning behind this number that could otherwise be incredibly unknown um and i think that's the main because that's the main point i would say because um you know if there's a maker of quiz books and they're charging whatever four dollars a quiz book well if they're if it costs them a penny or a tenth of a penny to make each one some people might kind of wonder is do you really need to charge all this much but i bet you it costs something like a buck and a quarter or two bucks or you know um something where there's a decent profit margin but not something that would be quote-unquote unreasonable by my own estimation. But I've run into cases in Bible quizzing where costs are charged and or, um, a fee is charged and there is no disclosure of the breakdown of costs. And that situation leads all the participants to assume that something untoward is happening, even, even if it's not or there's no proof of it. Um, I think that's just kind of human nature. If you are, if you ask for information and are not given it, you assume bad things. You don't assume good things. Yeah, that's generally true. You're starting, you're really starting to convince me to change my mind. Um, and I really, uh, you're Adam Smithing me and that's the problem because you know, Adam Smith was right. But anyway, so one possible counterpoint and just to see if this this resonates with you at all. So quizzing has to have locations where we uh, run quiz meets, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Those locations cost money uh, because, you know, reasons. Uh, but imagine, let's say I am the owner of a hotel or I'm the owner of a conference center or uh, I'm the owner of a retreat uh, center up in the mountains or something like that. And I say like, hey, we should totally use my business to uh, uh, run this quiz meet there. Uh, and my rate or the rate that I charge is X, right? It's the same rate that I charge anybody else in the universe, right? This is not like I'm, I'm charging quizzing extra or anything like that, right? Um, is that okay? I mean, are you, are, are you comfortable with that? I mean, certainly... I, I certainly wouldn't impress upon myself the need to provide that for free unless I wanted to. But I mean, at, I would, I would sort of think, you know, if I could, if I could say, well, I'm not going to take profit on this. I'm just going to charge the cost. Uh, wouldn't that be better? That might be, that might be better. But if someone decided to just charge cost, um, I would be very grateful and considerate. Um, a mark of generosity as opposed to something that should be expected. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but well, I mean, uh... I mean, there was a case of like someone who was involved in quizzing leadership who was also on the board of a location that hosted a meet and was one of the worst locations ever for <laughs> hosting a meet. And it definitely led many people to wonder like what sort of relationship is going on here um, that does not benefit quizzing, but benefits individuals. Yeah, and I think that I think that's really what comes down to, right? I think it does it benefit the program or in aggregate or does it benefit an individual, right? And so the idea of saying like, you know, charging a little bit extra and using that money to then subsidize other costs benefits the program, right? It it, it keeps quizzing going, right? Mm -hmm. and, which of course then goes back to our first principle, the most number of people memorizing the most number of verses, right? But like, you know, me charging the program 
enough so that I have profit on a business that I run. Like to me, that's like, well, I'm not, I'm enriching myself at the expense of the program. The program doesn't benefit in any way by being charged that extra amount of money. Um, so I don't know, maybe that, maybe that's what it comes down to. It's certainly not a black and white issue, but it's sort of the sort of second order effects that, that come into play. Yeah. But I also think it has to do with like how it happens. You know, if you own a facility, but you're also a district coordinator and then you say, we are having a meet at this facility and this is the rate. That's like a different situation than, um, someone within the quizzing community, like maybe some random parent or coach owns a facility and the district coordinator is looking around at places for meat and then decides to hold it here at a stated rate. You know, that's like very different where there's no force or, you know, like you could choose to not do it if you wanted. Um, so yeah, I think it is that if there's a potential conflict of interests, I think you can have a problem, but, um, yeah, if someone charges six grand to rent their, um, conference center for the weekend, I would not expect them to charge less to quizzing um, just hmm. because they're somehow involved with the quizzing community. Um, I would be very grateful if they did, but I wouldn't expect it and I wouldn't think poorly of them if they didn't. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Well, we are a bit over on time. We actually had two other umbrage things in the list, but we'll have to save them for the next episode. Um, so if you have any particular ideas for umbrage things, if you would like to take some umbrage, uh, even over the umbrage that we just discussed, um, please email us or any sort of topics or questions that you have, uh, please email us uh, at iq at cbqz.org. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Inside Quizzing, and feel free to, you know, tweet at us and ask questions via that mechanism as well. And, they, you know, we'd love to have conversations on Twitter as well as email. And with that, I will thank you all for listening. And Scott, thanks so much. Thank you, Griffin. Take care, everybody. Bye.